The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Today, it's great to have Tal Ben-Shahar on the podcast. Tal is a best-selling author and leadership expert. He taught two of the largest classes in Harvard University's history. Today, he consults and lectures around the world to executives in multinational corporations, the general public, and at-risk populations. The topics he lectures on include leadership, happiness, education, innovation, ethics, self-esteem, resilience, goal-setting, and mindfulness. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages. Tal is the founder of Happiness Studies Academy, an online program that provides the knowledge and the tools to generate happiness for individuals and school communities. Tal, so so glad we could finally arrange this chat. Yeah, so good to be here, Scott. You're a really interesting cat, you know that? <laughs> Looking into your background and everything. Did my wife, what do you, did my wife uh, tell you to say that? No, that's the opinion I formulated based on my research of your entire life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I dug, dug up some stuff, Tal. I dug up some stuff from your past. <laughs> so this is interesting. Um, prior to pursuing teaching and psychology, you were on the professional squash circuit until you experienced a career-ending injury. Is that right? That is correct. Um, you know, Scott, I remember when I was... Uh, 16 having the following thoughts um i thought to myself what would i be doing when i can no longer play squash uh, it was uh, not one of the but the central element in my life and uh, i resolved then to become a, a squash coach once i had retired unfortunately i did have uh, when i was uh, 21 almost 22 i did have a career ending injury and that led me on a on a very different path. Oh yeah, um, but or was it a very different path? You know, I, I read some of these really interesting uh, books, like Michael Murphy, you know, the founder of Esalen. He's written a book about 
golf, you know, and how it can lead to transcendent experiences, you know? I'm wondering, you know, in your squash days, did you experience inner happiness, you know, on the squash court? Maybe it's not as disconnected as we think. Yeah, no, you know, you're right. You know, I often think about, uh, I don't know if you remember the book, All I Needed to Learn, uh, All I Needed to Know yes. I Learned in Kindergarten. Uh, well, uh, I often think that all I needed to learn or know I learned on the squash court. So, yeah, there are many parallels. And even, uh, um, and there are not uh, indirect links. So even my, you know, my thinking about happiness today has a lot to do with my squash experience um, in that I was actually generally not happy. I mean, I felt a sense of meaning and, and purpose, but, but um, I had a constant knot in my stomach and uh, I felt uh, stressed. And, um, and I thought that winning tournaments, uh, fulfilling, you know, reaching certain milestones, objectives would make me happy. Then I won a few tournaments and, and I was happy, but just uh, um, for a very short period of time. And it was the first time when I when I thought about it. I mean, the thought wasn't formulated, but you know, I, I, I realized that happiness is about much more than uh, just reaching milestones, attaining goals. Then it was much more than about success. Well, you know, you didn't go directly from squash player to Harvard. You also worked at a shipping company. Is that right as well? Yeah, that is correct. So that was uh, my first uh, my first job during college and and after college. And um, oh. the reason I got it was because the owner of the company was a squash player. And I think, I mean, I realized uh, later on that he wanted a squash coach more than uh, anything else. But you know, got me uh, to 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 do some fascinating work and to stay in that. And I stayed in, ended up staying in that company. Uh, for uh, quite a few years and learning a lot because, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on ships and uh, on ships, you know, you're, you're sailing, there were cargo ships. So, you know, you're sailing with a group of, uh, you know, 28, 30 uh, men from uh, 10 countries. That's a lot and, of men. Um, That's my first you know, thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of men, a lot of countries. Um, it's a sort of a microcosm and, and I learned so much about, uh, mm. about myself being on those, uh, on those ships as well as about, uh, human nature and about different cultures. So it was really a formative experience on so many, so many levels. So how, so how did you end up at Harvard, at, uh, you know, teaching a course, um, that ended up becoming one of the most popular uh, courses at Harvard's in Harvard's history? Yeah, so, you know, I was, um, I think like most personal stories, you know, there's an element of, uh, of uh, desire and planning. And then there is also an element of yeah. uh, luck, fortune. And, um, uh, you know, for me, uh, given that I wasn't happy, I decided to switch my major, which was initially computer science. At Harvard? So you were an undergrad at Harvard? Right? And psychology. Okay. As, as, an, as an undergrad, and um, and then uh, when I when I went back as a graduate student, I then I had the real fortune of working with uh, Professor Philip Stone, who had started working with uh, Marty Seligman, 
in creating the new positive psychology. So um, in 1999, uh, Philip Stone was uh, one of the keynote speakers at the very first positive psychology summit. And uh, he took me along with him. So I attended that and it was uh, love at first sight. Uh, so there were, and, and then I, I was uh, Professor Stone's teaching assistant for six years. Um, it was, and uh, more than that, you know, he was my mentor. I was his uh, apprentice uh, for those six years. And when I graduated with, with my PhD, he was about to retire and he asked me whether I wanted to take over his course. Oh, he had. Because he had I been see. teaching positive psychology. And. Yeah, and uh, I thought for yep. about, uh, <laughs> I think it was three or four milliseconds, I'm not sure. <laughs> and I said, uh, yes. And so I took over his, his class and, um, and, and and started to, and I'm still teaching uh, his, his class, following in his uh, very big footsteps. You teach it now with your Happiness Studies Academy, yes. is that right? Yes, so I'm, I'm teaching it uh, through the Happiness yeah. Studies Academy. Over the years, I've uh, expanded beyond uh, positive psychology. And today, I integrate philosophy and, and economics and neuroscience and literature and film uh, all into this field of happiness because, um, you know, so many people had uh, so many wise things to say about the good life. Uh, not just positive psychologists and not just psychologists. Yeah, I love that you take a really broad perspective. Do you ever find that like your the philosophy contradicts the science and then you're like, what do I do? <laughs> Does that ever happen yeah, to you? Yes, actually often. And 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 this is why I I do love science. You know, I, I come from computer science background. Uh, my first, uh, first book that I read, you know, other, other than... Uh, Cliff notes, don't tell my high school teacher, was, uh, you know, when I was uh, 23, um, because I was always into the sciences. And and I'm still very much into the sciences, though I think the mm. sciences and the humanities can and, and should inform each other. So when philosophers disagree, you know, when, uh, when there's a conflict between uh, uh, Aristotle and Confucius, two giants, you know, right. it's uh, science can be the, the can be the arbiter. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Science being the science being the referee—that's <laughs> kind of a funny thought. <laughs> I don't know why it's funny, but it is. Um, yeah. So th this time period, you know, what an amazing time that was for you at Harvard. You know, I just want to like zoom in on that time. You know, the field, the whole field of positive psychology was just emerging. Um, there wasn't that much science yet on the science of happiness. There was Adina's work, you know, life sat. I'm trying to think like 1999, like what was that? What was there in the psychological literature? You know, you had to kind of be a MacGyver a bit of, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like there was, you know, in bringing together all these different perspectives and in, into a coherent whole that inspired, you know, these kids, <laughs> I still talk to uh, their adults now, but the, those that were in your class, uh, you know, and like uniformly, they're all like, it changed my life. So you did something that right there. Yeah, you know, so a few things. First of all, uh, no, I'm a, I'm a big believer in uh, Carl Rogers' claim that what is most mm. personal is most general. So I when I put that. together that class, I asked myself, what would I have wanted to learn? 
when I was a student, you know, sitting in their, uh, in their seat. Um, because I, I struggled through, uh, through college. And um, I knew when I was older that certain things would have helped me. So I integrated them into the class. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing, you know, yeah, we are talking about, you know, 1999, early, early 2000s. Positive psychology is, is a new and emerging field. And at the same time, it's uh, an old, um, in fact, ancient field. Because um, Aristotle talked about the good life and had so much to say about it. And then fast forward to the 20th century. You may have heard of a, a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow. Yes, uh, I, I think my audience has, has heard that name ad nauseum <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> And um, in fact, the textbook that I used for my um, no my positive toward a psychology of being was it toward a psychology? psychology of being? Oh my gosh! Um, because um, you know, Mas- I mean, you know, Maslow wrote a chapter uh, called "Towards a Positive Psychology." Yeah. So uh, he had a lot to say. Still does have a lot to say about it. And in fact, you know, I, I thought about it recently. I think that there is an advantage in uh, being at the um, at, at the onset or at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, of a field when there isn't that much content because um, yeah. it um, it's exciting. <laughs> it forces one to be uh, <clears throat> creative and it forces one to be eclectic, and there is a lot of value in uh, eclecticism. There is a lot of value in. Um, in, um, in, in the need to look outside your field. And, you know, if, uh, if a field has too many good answers, then there is no incentive to, to venture out. And I think venturing out is, 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 is so, so important uh, for, and again, whether you're in a new field or, or an old field, venturing out is so important because that's when you, you become creative, innovative, it's just easier to do when you have no choice. I think that's a really, um, really good point. Uh, well, there was all sorts of interesting things there, you know, people who ended up becoming big shots. Um, there three, I want to just mention three, three people. Uh, so first of all, is it true? Adam Grant was one of your all time favorite students at Harvard, <laughs> the organizational psychologist, yeah. give the author of give and take and yes. lots of other bestsellers. Yeah. What was he like as an undergraduate? Give us some gossip. <laughs> Hey, he, he, yeah, he was Adam Grant. Wow, he, um, mini, mini, mini Adam Grant. He, he, yeah, he, he helped me a lot, oh. I must say. <laughs> Taught me a lot. That is so cool. <laughs> when, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, um, so, you know, he was my student and uh, Aliyah Krum. I was gonna met, that was the second today. one I was going to mention, yeah. So Aliyah Krum yes. was your TA, one of your TAs, right? And now she is a. Uh, she was uh, initially my student, um, my advisee, and later became my TA. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. just for our listeners, Aliyah Crum is a professor now at Stanford University, doing really awesome work on uh, the placebo effect and mindset, and how mindset can affect our stress and things of that nature. She's a, she's a superstar now. And then now, also, that you had Sean Aker was a TA of yours as well. Is it, right? Yeah. Yes, I- I- indeed. Um, so uh, Sean was uh, the head teaching fellow who, uh, who masterfully uh, managed the class. He also taught. He was already then an, an extraordinary teacher. And, um, 
and I must say it was um, so. So you know, so, so a bit of the, the, the history about the class. The first year, I had just a handful of students. You know, eight to be precise. You only had eight students your first year. Yes, Whoa. but I'm, I'm I'm actually not telling you the whole truth here because two dropped out. <laughs> so that leaves with six. I bet they're regretting and, um, it now. Then, I bet those two are regretting it now. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. uh, they 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 really hurt me. Uh, then, you know, to lose, uh, what is it, 25% of the class ah. in one fell swoop. That, that wasn't easy. Um, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you strong. And it right? did. And it did. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. You're living proof of that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the following year, it was, uh, the class grew and I had, you know, a couple of hundred. And then the third year, um, much more than that. And, 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 and it, um, it was like running a mini organization. And... Um, you know, with uh, 20 teaching assistants and, uh, and, um, and, you know, and so many students. Um, and um, I have, uh, you know, the, the, I, I couldn't have done it, obviously, without, uh, without Sean, without, you know, Jeff Perotti and, and, uh, and, and so many other um, TAs who are teaching positive psychology today. And, uh, you know, we're, we're still in touch. And uh, it was a wonderful a beautiful experience. Time. In your life, I'm sure you feel uh, very nostalgic when you think about that time period of your life. Um, well, I was wondering, how, and I maybe this should have been my first question, but how do you define happiness? I think it's a really important question. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is an and important question and not an easy one because there are so many definitions of ha happiness. And in fact, many people just say, well, happiness is like beauty. You know it when you see it or you know it when you experience it. Cop um, out. But I, <laughs> Cop out. Cop out. <laughs> Answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 I, but I do think it is important to, to define happiness. Uh, so I will not um, yeah, is. cop out of that one because when, when we understand what it is and we're more likely to, to, to find it, you know, it reminds me, sorry, I'm, I'm not copying out. I'm just deviating. Um, <laughs> oh, I know. The, uh, yeah. We've talked before about this. <laughs> you, 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 you have a definition. <laughs> yeah. But um, the um, uh, Alice in Wonderland, you know, so when Alice meets mm -hmm. the Cheshire cat, one of my favorite parts, uh, and she, sa uh, she says to the Cheshire cat, which way should I go? And he says, well, that depends where you want to get to. And she says, well, you know, it doesn't matter where I get to. And then you say, well, it doesn't matter which way you go. Mm -hmm. So if we, you know, if we want to get to happiness, we need to, to define it so that we know where we're going. Um, so I, I see happiness as uh, comprising five elements. Uh, they, um, they, they are the SPIRE elements. This is the acronym. The first element, wow. of, element of happiness is spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being is about uh, ha having a sense of meaning and purpose. It's about being present, being mindful in the here and now. Um, physical well-being, the second element of Aspire, is about uh, nutrition. It's about exercise. It's about rest, sleep, recovery. Uh, it's about touch. Um, then there is intellectual well-being. Intellectual well-being is about curiosity. You, you know, this is one of my favorite all-time studies. Uh, curious people actually live longer, all other things being equal. Oh, yeah. Todd so, Cashin's work a little bit shows that, right? Yeah. Cashin's work, uh, Carmeli's work. 
And, um, you know, I find that fascinating because, you know, they say curiosity kills the cat, but it actually <laughs> helps humans live longer, which uh, is nice. It's one, the, it's one of the examples, yeah, that like the, the animal studies don't generalize to the human studies, you well, know, because with cats, on, yeah, it's no yeah, good. I haven't done it on rats, though, so. Uh, oh, yeah, that's true. Should, that's true. We should see. Hold out. <laughs> but yeah, you could definitely see, you know, cats, you know, need to curb their curiosity a bit. I could see yeah. dogs as well. Yeah, so, so I hope cats don't read my book because it's dangerous for them, actually. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, if they, if they could read it all, that would be dangerous. That's correct. Yeah. The Cheshire. Um, and then you have um, under intellectual well-being, you also have deep learning, which is also an important part of uh, nice. of, uh, of intellectual well-being. Uh, and then you have relational well-being, the R of Spire. Uh, relations are the number. Relationships are the number one predictor of of happiness, and its relationships with others, as well as relationship with oneself. And finally, it's emotional well-being. How do you deal with painful emotions? Uh, how do you cultivate pleasurable emotions? So it's spiritual well-being, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. These are the five elements of happiness that make whole person nice. well-being. Or in a word. Oh, I love that. I really love that phrase. Um, don't you have like a whole being institute or something? Um, so I was one of the co-founders yeah. of the whole being institute. And now uh, most of my work is being done as the happiness studies academy, uh, which focuses on uh, whole being in the spine. I know about elements. that. Yeah. I just associate that phrase whole being. I think, Oh, tall likes that phrase. I love that phrase. Cause I've, I've loved that phrase. Um, for a while uh when i when i saw you use it that's great um so you said something about like deep learning but i couldn't where do you slot that into the spot where where's the d i'm confused about that one yeah good yeah no no deep learning is under uh, intellectual oh i see okay yeah that makes sense that makes sense okay yeah. and, and 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 since you brought that up let me just say a few things about that because you know when you say to people oh emotions uh, pleasurable emotions are important for happiness you know no brainer or when you say a sense of meaning and purpose is important for happiness yeah of course or, or physical exercise but but people ask me how is deep learning connected to to happiness well it's connected in a very deep way you know going back to aristotle whom i consider the uh, the the father of the uh, of happiness studies you know, he talks about uh, human beings being rational animals and uh, how uh, contemplation is, uh, to, to in, in his mind, the, the most important pillar to happiness. But what is it about deep learning? You know, the, um, uh, the first course that I took at Harvard wasn't actually in computer science, nor was it in psychology. The first course I took as an undergrad was in speed reading. Um, this was during freshman week, and it was it was a very important course because uh, you know we were required to read hundreds of pages a week uh, at times. So speed reading, important skill. Um, however, looking back, I think an even more important course uh, to teach to mandate uh, on college campuses is slow reading. So learning to to look at you know one paragraph a short text, read it and reread it and delve deeply into its, uh, its, its meaning, its wonders. Why? Uh, first of all, because um, um, we potentially derive a great deal of joy 
when we when we deeply engage with texts or with nature or with the work of art. Second, um, it also benefits other areas in our lives. For example, relationships. You know, one of the um, reasons why we see um, so much relationship popping in today's world, uh, why we see the dissolution of so many uh, relationships is because um, people no longer exercise the deep learning muscles. Um, you know, the average amount of time that people uh, spend on a web page is seven seconds. So, you know, seven seconds and new stimulation. And now we need new stimulation, new stimulation. And these muscles are exercised. And then we need new stimulation in life and, and, and we get bored very quickly. Uh, instead, if we learn to delve deeper into uh, a work of art or, or a text, if we really get to know a text deeply, well, then we can um, use these very same muscles or they will be implemented automatically. Also, when we engage and interact with a person. So, you know, the, the right neural pathways for deep relationships are cultivated. We, we, we develop them when we engage deeply with a text or, or anything else for that matter. And relationships is just one example, you know, would apply to, you know, the world of business as well. Um, it can help us better know uh, a person, uh, ascertain whether a deal is a good deal or not. So, so the deep learning muscles are very important muscles, which in today's world, most people do not use sufficiently. Yeah, I love that you include that in your model. Where does creativity fit into your model? Um, so, you know, when it comes to creativity, and again, who am I to talk to you about creativity? But when it comes to creativity, you know, we need to uh, create the right conditions, put the right conditions uh, in place. So, you know, the work of uh, Alice Eisen and, and Barbara Fredrickson, you know, they point to, to the fact that when we increase uh, or improve our mood, when we experience more positive, pleasurable emotions, uh, we are more likely to think outside the box. Um, so, that, so that's one element, you know, that, that, that would go under uh, emotional well-being, increasing uh, emotional well-being that will, will help us become more creative. But not only that, you know, intellectual well-being as well. You know, when we, um, uh, when we learn uh, uh, about different topics, we become more creative. You know, I, the, my personal favorite example. So, you know, so I love uh, music and specifically classical music and specifically the um, um, the classical and the romantic periods. Mm. So I listen to a lot of Mozart and Beethoven. If you listen to Beethoven's first two symphonies, they sound like Mozart. You listen to his third symphony, that's Beethoven. That's the romantic oh, wow. Beethoven. Now, Beethoven would not have become Beethoven without studying Gregorian chants and Bach and, uh, and, and Mozart. So he deeply studied these, you know, so the, 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 um, the illusion that, you know, the great creative genius, you know, brings creativity out of nowhere. It's an illusion. Um, so, so, so deep learning contributes a great deal to, um, to creativity. And let, let, let me give another example from spiritual well-being. So part of spiritual well-being is being present, being in the here and now. Um, flow, Mihai Chiksen Mihai's concept of being in the here and now, that contributes a great deal 
to uh, to creativity. Mm-hmm. So if you look at uh, similarly, by the way, there's also research that um, you know having a good night's sleep that contributes to creativity. So every one of the spire elements, including by the way, relational well-being, which is the only one that I didn't mention. I mean, yeah. creativity often comes in conversation. I mean, I remember you know you you and I met um, for uh, for lunch in New York City and. I don't know about you, but my creative juices were flowing. And uh, I have very fond memories of that. And, yes. and, and that was as a result of you know, bouncing ideas. You know, we talked about Maslow and we talked about, uh, you know, our, our respective histories and, 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 and our, you know, desired future. And, 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 and these encounters lead to creativity. So every one of the spire elements is, is part of, of sort of the, um, the foundation or um, uh, the, the, um, the ground the fertile ground from which creativity grows. Oh, yeah. I, I absolutely love that. And um, uh, my next question is more of a philosophical question because I'm really genuinely curious to know sure. your thoughts on this. What's the benefit of um, putting all those things under the umbrella of happiness versus uh, is you, you slipped into the term well-being while you're discussing this. So do you equate happiness with well-being and then what do you um, equate, uh, like some positive psychologists equate happiness with life satisfaction and positive affect. And so that, what do you equate with that? Like, what do you call that? What they're calling happiness, yeah, what you do know, you this call is that? exactly why it's so important to, to define our terms. And in, in, in that respect, it's, um, I don't know if it's arbitrary the way we define our terms, because, you know, there is rhyme or reason, uh, at least to us. Um, but at the same time, there isn't a right definition. Now, that doesn't mean there are no right and wrong and anything goes. You know, we know that doing certain things will have a, a, a positive impact and doing other things will have negative impact. Um, but at the same time, whether you define happiness as comprising, comprising the five spire elements or happiness being about um, adding the um, each moment, moment by moment experience and, you know, the aggregate of these moments is happiness or whether you equate it with the with well-being or with life satisfaction you know that's a matter of of choice the reason why i chose to um to to draw on the spire elements is because i think that is an um, inclusive and um um, definition that brings together Um, a lot of the work, you know, so freud's work on the pleasure principle victor frankl's work on 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 meaning um, uh, Robert Nozick or Daniel Kahneman's work on aggregating our, you know, experienced uh, self, you know, at dinners and Daniel Kahneman's work on, you know, looking back and reflecting on uh, on our lives. I'm including all those in 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 my model. And yet, you know, there are people who say, well, you should add different things. You know, recently a, a few people actually said to me, you should include financial well-being under under happiness because that's important too. And and my response is that if it's important for you, include it. You know, as, as much as I emphasize research, I emphasize me search even more. And 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 that is what uh, Maslow. Yes emphasize a lot. So when he talked about doing a research in psychology, he talked about a great deal about, um, you know, dig, digging deep, looking into our best experiences and learning from those, not just about looking at uh, research that aggregates 
other people's experiences. Cool. And it seems like you're really focusing on kind of the, uh, is this fair to say happiness is kind of the emergence of the all operating in all cylinders and all those things? Because you, if you just pluck one of those things out of the context of the others, you get like, you know, you can get like a William James who was intellectual up the kazoo, but wanted to kill kill himself, you know, um, through most of his life. Uh, would you, I wouldn't describe him as a happy person, you know? So um, it just seems like one of those plucked out of the context of the others is not necessarily happiness in itself, but it seems like you're using it. Is it fair to say that's more of an emergence of, you know, Yes, all it, those boxes, it is about up. them because, you know, every one of those matter, you know, even, uh, you know, you look at Viktor Frankl as a person who, who, who searched for and found meaning in his life. But to say that Viktor Frankl was happy when he was at Auschwitz, for example, you know, that would be ludicrous. So, right. um, you know, meaning is not happiness. At the same time, a person without a sense of meaning in life um, would be, you know, really stretched, probably impossible to find happiness. So meaning is is a necessary but 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 not sufficient condition for happiness, and you can say that about mm. each one of the spire elements. Having said that, and this is, this is often a, a misunderstanding that um, about the model, you don't need to have them all to the nth degree, or you don't need a ten on uh, on, on on each one of those elements. And in fact, you can't have a ten. And um, what you need is to ask yourself, so which are the ones that are more important for me? And let me go you know, full steam ahead on those. And at the same time, manage the others so that they don't detract from, from, uh, from, from happiness. You know, it has, I'll, I'll draw a parallel here to, um, to something that Peter Drucker, the... Um, the, the considered the, the the man who invented management or at least modern management studies. You know, he said about strength, he said we need to focus on our strength and manage our weaknesses. He didn't say focus on our strength and ignore our weaknesses. And in the same way, we need to uh, manage uh, all five elements of the spire and then primarily focus on those that are uh, most near and dear to us. So, you know, if I think about it, you know, on, uh, personally, um, intellectual well-being is uh, extremely important to me, and, um, and and therefore I spend a lot of time reading, you know, writing and learning. Um, at the same time, you know, physical well-being, of course, is is important to me. But you know, I no longer play professional squash, so I exercise and I do what I think is uh, good enough in that in that area. You know, I'm not I'm not training for the Ironman. You know, I don't work out. You know three hours a day, um, but, but, but I do what, what, what I know works for me, which is enough. So, and, and, and we need to, um, to balance all these things because, you know, there are only, uh, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, 25 if we're going back from, uh, you know, changing the clocks. Um, and, um, and we need to, to do the best that we can in, in the limited time that we have. And we cannot... Uh, experience of 10 each one of the spire elements just unrealistic i love that i love that you mentioned you know you're hinting at the fact there are individual differences in in desire to fulfill each one of those um are there also cultural differences in how people different cultures define happiness differently right 
Yes. So, you know, when we look at and happiness, we need to look at it um, at three levels. Uh, the three levels are the universal, the cult cultural, and the personal. Mm -hmm. So the universal level, there are certain universals, you know, whether you are in, uh, you know, in uh, Nairobi or uh, or uh, Sacramento or uh, or uh, Shanghai, um, to be happy, you want a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Uh, you need to be physically active. Um, you need to to learn. Um, relationships are key in all these cult in every culture in the world. As uh, you know, is gratitude and 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 dealing with painful emotions. So these there are certain universals. At the same time, there are also cultural differences. You know, when it comes to um, to to relationships, um, again in 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 the in in the U.S. Uh, much more in individualistic in in Africa, the idea of Ubuntu. Uh, I am because you are is a central concept and, and, and in China, much more collectivistic. So there are cultural differences that we need to take into consideration and certain things that will make a, a European or a North American, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing here, broad brushstrokes, that would make them happy would not necessarily work or not work in the same way in, uh, um, in, in, in Africa or Asia. And again, very broad brushstrokes here. Um, so there are cultural issues that we need to take into consideration. And finally, we need to take individual um, issues into consideration. And this is where we search, because uh, not all Americans or not all Kenyans, or not all Chinese are alike. They're very different. And this is where we need to look inside and ask, for example, which one of the spire elements is most important for me? And what can I do in my life to um, to um, to increase my uh, the quota within that spire element because for me it could be, it, it's studying philosophy and psychology perhaps for someone else it's studying languages for someone else it's art so there are individual differences as well and we need to look at those three levels again the universal the cultural the individual here 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 thanks thanks for that <laughs> making those distinctions. Um, what would you say to someone, let's say a student came up to you and was like, Professor uh, Ben Shahar, um, I really want to achieve happiness. What can I do to achieve happiness? You know, what would you say to that student? Uh, I'd say to... I want, a, I want a high performance on happiness. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd say to them, um, Houston, we have a problem. And, uh -oh. <laughs> and the reason is the reason that was my Scooby Doo. That was my Scooby Doo. Yeah. <laughs> the reason is because um, of uh, research that was conducted by Iris Moss, and um, what uh, she and, and others showed was that people who who start off by saying, you know, happiness is very important for me, or you know, I want to pursue happiness and I'm going to be happier, they actually end up less happy. Um, so the reason why we have a problem is because on the one hand, we're told this, but on the other hand, we also know that happiness is a good thing. You know, first of all, it feels good to feel good. Second, you know, people who are happier, as, as we talked about, are more creative. They, um, uh, they enjoy better relationships. They're physically healthier. Um, they, um, they're nicer. Kind, you know, we all want happiness. It's a good thing. Uh, and yet on the other hand, we know. Iris Moss research, 
that um, waking up in the morning and saying that or going to our professor and saying, you know, I want to be happier and, you know, what can I do to become happier? That actually detracts, mm-hmm. takes away from our happiness. So how do we reconcile this uh, contradiction or paradox or challenge? And the way we do it is by pursuing happiness indirectly. So uh, let me use an analogy before I give a concrete example. So the the analogy is sunlight. You know, if, if the sun is shining and I'm looking up directly at the sun, that will hurt my eyes, that will actually cause me pain. So what can I do? I can break the, the, the sun rays, the sunlight, um, th- using a prism, for example, and then indirectly look at the sun. And then I can really enjoy the colors of the rainbow in the same way with happiness. Um, rather than pursuing it directly, I can indirectly pursue it. And what are the metaphorical colors of the rainbow? They are the spire elements. So if I wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to do work that's meaningful to me, or I want to be more present and meditate, that will contribute indirectly to my happiness. Or if I start exercising regularly, physical well-being, that's indirectly pursuing happiness. Or if I engage in deep learning, if I ask questions, Mm -hmm. curiosity, that's indirectly leading to happiness. Same for cultivating relationships, investing in my relationships, making them a priority, or or, um, expressing gratitude, emotional well-being. These are all ways of indirectly pursuing happiness. So enjoying sunlight without being hurt. Oh, I love that. Um, you know, a lot of what we talked about and, and even talk about that now, you know, it might be, might be more of a privilege for some people over others, you know, and, and I'm wondering, um, you know, how can this positive psychology approach that you're putting forward, uh, try to lift up individuals who are most at risk populations? Yeah. So a few things, you know, the first thing is, the foundation of happiness is first allowing in unhappiness. In other words, you know, happiness is not about being happy all the time or a happy life. It's not about experiencing a constant high all the time. Uh, in, co- in fact, it's about embracing painful emotions, uh, uh, accepting the fact that they're part and parcel of every life difficulties, hardships. And paradoxically, when we accept and embrace painful emotions, that's when we open ourselves up to, to more happiness. So, you know, saying that or, 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 or promising that, you know, the, if you truly understand happiness and, and do all the right things, so to speak, you'll, you'll experience a constant high, you know, that, that's a detached, unrealistic notion. Second, connected to this it's not an all or nothing proposition. Um, you know, p- people ask me today you know, who know that I got into the field of uh, happiness studies or positive psychology because I was unhappy. They say, okay, so, so 30 years hence, are you finally happy? And, uh, and, and, and my answer to that is, 
I don't know. I don't even know how to answer this question. Why? Because I don't think there is a point before which one is unhappy, after which one is happy. Um, right, I don't think happiness is not a binary zero one, rather it exists on a continuum. And um, in other words, I'm happier today than I was 30 years ago, certainly, but I hope 10 years from now to be happier than I am today. You know, it's a lifelong journey, a journey that ends when, when life ends. Now, the point, therefore, is wherever I am on that continuum, the question is, how can I become a little bit happier? What can I do to increase my levels of well-being? And I can do that whether I'm in the, on the depressed side, maybe perhaps the very depressed side on the continuum, or if I'm doing okay, or if I'm doing great and want to be even happier than that. In other words, the field is relevant for, for all of us. And the tools can be implemented um, uh, for anyone, anywhere, anytime. The same time, the field, whether a positive psychology or the science of happiness, is not a panacea. And um, it's, it, it doesn't solve everything. And if a person is experiencing depression, then I recommend going to a a conventional therapist, or if necessary, a psychiatrist. Mm. And if, um, you know, if um, we experience a serious uh, uh, poverty in certain areas, we need to alleviate the poverty and deal with the poverty. You know, going to, um, the, the, there, there are certain um, basics, basic needs that, um, that uh, are more important to, um, to deal with than uh, happiness. Now, if you can deal with them concurrently together, then, then, then great, it's the, the best of both worlds. But if you had to choose, do I alleviate you know, severe poverty or do I teach them the science of happiness? That's a no-brainer, you know? Poverty first, of course. Why do you think depression levels are skyrocketing? Do you think there's a relationship between technology and cell phone use and depression? <laughs> Um, unfortunately, there there is, and this is uh, based on a lot of research that's out there. Whether it's uh, Eric Kleinberg, who's a sociologist at NYU, who's shown that um, the more time we spend on social media, the lonelier uh, we are, and um, and um, and then there is work by uh, Jean uh, Twenge from uh, San Diego, who shows that. Uh, the reason why levels of depression are so high among the among teenagers is because they're spending more and more time on uh, the smartphone technology. You know, the number one addiction today, not alcohol, not drugs, not gambling. It's technology. And uh, we're paying a high price for it. Now, in moderation, technology is great. Uh, but we've gone way, way beyond moderation. Oh yeah, I have this other screen up of my Twitter that I've just been on the whole time and keep paying pay attention. Oh, you said something? No, I'm joking. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Okay, but you know, here's the thing. You know, compassion is is just over and over again in the literature a really important tenet of happiness. Um, it just seems like social media. You know, just my perception. Social media is causing us to be even more polarized and not talk to each other in a those who we disagree with. It's not. It's not. We don't talk to them in a, such a compassionate way when we're performing, you know, trying to get likes, you know, and what's, 
how do we get out of this rut and and and, and return to relationships and compa- positive relationships yeah. and compassion? No, that, that, that's that's the question, and you know the the most troubling study that I came across, maybe my entire career, is uh, by uh, Sarah Conrad, and and what she found was that levels of empathy among twenty year olds today is, according to her measurement, 40% lower than empathy levels of 20-year-olds from 20 years ago. In other words, over a period of 20 years, empathy levels went down by 40%, according to this measure. Now, it doesn't matter how you measure, uh, you know, they they did something similar in the UK and they found that, uh, um, that teenagers and young adults displayed less empathy, less care, less compassion towards other people. Now, why do we see that? And the answer is, unfortunately, in technology, because how do you develop uh, empathy? You know, empathy, is, as I see it, is the moral uh, language and uh, the language of morality. And um, how do you develop a language? Well, you know, take... Uh, uh, Vietnamese. Let's say, you know, Scott, you decide to study Vietnamese. One thing you can do is take uh, classes in Vietnamese and, you know, uh, you know, three times a week, go to class and, and, and you'll learn and you'll, you'll memorize the vocabulary and, you know, your Vietnamese will certainly improve. However, that's no match for uh, going to Vietnam and immersing yourself mm-hmm. in the language. That's when you really pick up the language. That's when you'll get to a much higher level than taking classes in Vietnamese. In other words, immersion, that's the key. Now let's go to the language of morality, which is empathy. What does it mean to immerse ourselves in that language? It means to be together in person with other people, to play in the same sandbox, to be around the same desk, to to hurt someone and then see the reaction, to be hurt by someone, to cry and then to, to, to reconcile, you know, that's how empathy is cultivated. It's not cultivated when you are on, uh, on social media. Um, even worse things happen because, you know, because you don't see the other person, you, you see that you get away with, with horrible things. Um, and, and the natural, and, I, and it is natural, the natural sentiment of empathy is not um, cultivated, doesn't grow, doesn't develop. And yes, we can have more and more classes on, uh, you know, value clarification and, and empathy and talk about the golden rule. And that's important. I'm not belittling their, their, their value. However, that's no substitute for immersion in the language of empathy. And today, kids, uh, as well as adults, interact far less face-to-face mm. or, or in person. That's a real shame. Um, and it's, uh, COVID didn't help that, did it? It, it, it didn't, and, and it's not. And hopefully it is temporary and we'll go back, um, way back to um, appreciating in-person uh, interactions. At the same time, not all is lost on, um, when, when, when we are forced to interact online because... You know, while perhaps um, we need to have more virtual relationships today by by virtue of the situation, there is an important distinction that we need to make, and that is between superficial and deep relationships. 
Mm. You know, if I spend uh, an hour with a friend uh, through Skype, through um, through Zoom, uh, we can have a very deep conversation, and that deep conversation uh, does contribute to developing empathy. Not the same as being in the same you know same room around the same table. Um, however, it's a lot better than uh, just interacting through emojis or uh, LOLs or other shortcuts to emotions. There are no shortcuts to cultivating empathy. Do you make a distinction between compassion and empathy? Again, I I think a lot of it is uh, is a matter of definition. I I think they are uh, intimately Mm. um, connected. So a person who cultivates empathy, the ability to identify um, other people's feeling and then to identify with their feelings, I think that person will be more compassionate, will be more caring. Yeah. And you're, yeah, it seems like care is kind of the underlying thread, you know, across all of that. Um, you made an interesting point about uh, more face-to-face interaction. I find that, you know, if there are people that are kind of, I find them to be kind of jerks on Twitter, if I DM them, you know, direct message them privately and talk to them, they tend to be quite cordial with me. And uh, so it, it just makes me think that, gosh, maybe we should all be having more one-on-one interactions with each other than these performative self-esteem uh, attempts at self-esteem boosts, you know. But. You know, if, if on, on Twitter or, you know, the, <laughs> the talkbacks knew how much they were hurting the person that they were messaging, they would not do it. Mm. And not only would they not do it, it would go a long way into strengthening you know, the, the, the empathic, the compassionate uh, connections in their brains. But when it just goes out there, you know, into the ether, uh, it hurts um, without them uh, uh, learning or even knowing just how much it hurts. I love that. Well, so tell me about some, you know, we'll, we'll end here with, you know, tell me about your latest endeavors, such as the Happiness Studies Academy. And then you have a certificate in happiness studies. Uh, C-I-H-S. So tell, tell our listeners about that because they might be super interested in that, all that. Yeah, so the, the Certificate in Happiness Studies is a year-long journey, which is actually a, a lifelong nice. journey. Uh, but the year-long journey um, is where um, participants uh, get uh, a lot of, uh, or have, you know, over 40 lectures and, you know, 50 webinars and, uh, and a lot of reading and exercises. And the purpose of this uh, Certificate in Happiness Studies is to help participants become happier and help them help others become happier. And we have uh, students from uh, over 60 countries um, who are, um, you know, therapists and coaches and uh, consultants and, and managers and teachers and parents, and um, you know, the, 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 and doctors, you know, the, the whole gamut. People who are introducing the science of happiness to their professional life as well as to their personal life, helping themselves and others become happier. That sounds great. <laughs> that sounds really great. Well, I wish you all the great success with it. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for chatting with me today. You're you're a legend in the field, so it was a true honor for me. You know, so thank you for the chat today. Thank you for that, Scott. And I I can't wait to meet in person again real soon. I can't wait. (laughs) All the best to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. 
That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience and would like early access to new episodes, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.